Research suggests that if you are from a disadvantaged background and you make it to university, you're actually a lot smarter. I was working a lot of it, sometimes over 20 hours, and that's what this cost of living crisis is now doing, and it will impact their grade. What I would love for some of our underrepresented groups is to have a much more systematic mentoring system where we could actively support to boost the things that my research shows is essential for success. Welcome to the Inclusive Exclusive, a podcast brought to you by Henley Business School. Here we look at equity in UK organisations, bringing you powerful insights from academic research, combined with real-world stories and thought-provoking interviews. We'd love you to subscribe and join us as we work together for equity. Hello and welcome to Social Mobility in Universities. I am Dr. Miriam Mara, Associate Professor of Finance and Co-Director of Equity, Diversity and Inclusion at Henley Business School. Today, we are looking to get to the earth of the topic of social mobility in universities. Social mobility refers to the change in a person's socioeconomic situation either in relation to their parents or throughout their lifetime. It is very much linked to the concept of equity and opportunity. It's the extent to which people have the same chances to do well in life, regardless of their socioeconomic background or their parents' socioeconomic background or other circumstances beyond their control. So our conversation today will be very much around the personal journeys at a professional and human level. And so I'm very happy to be to be joined today by Professor Carol Fuller, Head of the Institute of Education at the University of Reading, and Jem McKenzie, Inclusion and Communities Officer at Reading University Students Union. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Carol, would you like to tell us a bit about yourself first? So thank you for the lovely introduction. I'm head of the Institute of Education and um, it's really important part of my identity is to say also that I'm a sociologist and throughout my academic career I've been very interested in the idea of aspirations as connect to social mobility, particularly aspirations around education and you know looking at barriers to social mobility as well as those things that enable it. Uh, very close to my heart because I am someone who has benefited from the process of social mobility and really looking forward to our conversation today. Thank you, Carol. Jem, would you now like to tell us something about yourself too? Hi, uh, thank you for the introduction. So growing up, I came from a family that was um, quite poor. My mother, she was born into a family where her mum worked hard and her dad didn't work. And then I was born into a situation where she had me at a very young age and my dad didn't work. And it was domestic abuse case and for most of my childhood and the whole of my childhood. And then I was the eldest of six children. And um, so that meant growing up on a food banks, not doing, not having the money to have driving lessons, not really having the money or time for myself and just trying to get by and support my family and help my mom. So going into university from that background was very interesting and very different, especially because I took a gap year. But instead of what everyone knows as a gap year, going traveling, I took a gap year to work and live in my flat on my own because I became 
um, homeless after my mum moved away to escape the domestic abuse situation and she had no room for me to join her and I was in my last year of A-levels so it was a very complex situation and I just turned 18 and it was really weird because I was on my own in a city that I grew up in and I got some help from a, a I think it's like a charity called Framework and they help like young homeless people in Nottingham but they gave me a place to stay and I was quite fortunate so that was I guess a bit of my story before I came to Reading University and obviously I carried that with me so while I was here I was just sort of always firefighting because alongside of being from that background I'm also half black I'm also bisexual I'm also a woman and those come with challenges in themselves and I didn't I wasn't even meant to go to university it was a shock I even finished my A-levels let alone get into my first choice uni and graduate. Thanks you, Jen, really, for sharing so many personal details of your hardship. It's uh, fascinating. Jem, I will start with you then to discuss a bit your professional role in the university and your knowledge about that, the matter. So given your role in a Reading University Student Union, what does widening participation mean to you from a student perspective? And why do you think it is important for universities? In my job, so I guess my area of expertise that I'm expected to do is around EDI, it's shortened to, but also known as equity or equality, um, diversity and inclusion, as well as working with underrepresented groups of officers as well, called PTOs, part-time officers, who might represent different backgrounds. And my area is also around community and belonging. So in my experience here around riding participation, it is really important to get certain students of groups of students engaged. For example, Black students, it's important to have them engaged because when it comes to university student experience and making sure that we're doing everything we can to support them and knowing why certain students of groups might not come here or knowing why we're lower numbers or higher numbers and if we are doing what we can to keep them happy, it's really important to ensure that what well, not only have we got that feedback, but also that they want to give that feedback and they trust the institution. Um, so widening participation to me is, from a student perspective, just means making sure that we have every single student group, not just represented, but feel like they are a part of this place, that they belong here. And that is, I guess I'd say the number one priority for me this year was around belonging and making sure students know they have that voice and that they do belong here and that this can be their home. Thank you, Jem. Yeah, I love this concept of trust and belonging and inclusion. Talking to you, Carol, instead a bit about the research that shows that students from lower socioeconomic backgrounds tend often to perform worse than their peers academically. And that happens especially in early stages of their undergraduate studies. And it seems that this has also increased over and after the pandemic. Given your research and experience as an educator, Carol, what do you think has worked well? What works not so well from a teaching and learning perspective? 
It's a really interesting question, but I wanted to sort of preface my answer with a with a statement that I wanted to make. And I think when we look at widening participation or we look at differential educational attainment in higher education, we look to see what groups are and aren't achieving as well as each other. And I always fear that there's an underpinning assumption that if you're underperforming, you're not that smart. And when we focus on widening participation and trying to get different groups into university, we kind of we, we talk about oh well we don't want to lower the grades because that you know devalues our you know students that do make the grades and i want to be really really crystal clear that we do have differential attainment students first coming to university do struggle and they do struggle after they leave but there are some very particular reasons for that but first and foremost and i think gem is a really perfect example of this young people come to university not knowing the rules of the game and they have to take a bit longer to try and figure out how to play it and then again i think when we see that transitioning out of university there's a very particular skill set to writing a cv to writing a job application and, and this really struck me a couple of years ago when I uh, when I was I was very lucky to have a Europe placement and we advertised for some students from across the university and what was crystal clear was that some schools had students that were submitting perfect CVs and almost identical not in their content but in their layout expressions of interest whereas other students were submitting you know very poorly put together documents and if we use that as a decider on who to interview, you know, there's a group that are disadvantaged. And so I asked those students, I interviewed them all and I asked them and it transpired that the students that had put together really great expressions of interest had specific sessions in their departments, on their degrees to tackle some of these skills. So I, I do think there are some very particular reasons why young people take a while to catch up at university and also why they're not always so successful when they enter the postgraduate market. Thank you, Carol. That's very interesting. I'm going to touch upon now a kind of a very current problem, which is the cost of living crisis. So I'm turning to you, Gem, again. Obviously, the cost of living crisis affects all students, but those coming from a lower socioeconomic background are disproportionately more impacted. So what has the impact been on students you have worked with, Gem? So I've got a different range of students coming to me with the impacts of the cost of living crisis. And one of the groups that I've observed at least to be some of the most impacted includes students from a low socioeconomic background, but also who may have an international background or different culture background, because not only are they dealing with economy crisis in the UK and they're not from here but also they're dealing with unknown circumstances and land and higher prices on top of it and a lot of them are also parents or mature students and that in itself becomes of its own challenges and having a kid in this time as well is really difficult which in my own background I saw from my mum and how financially that adds so much more pressure to you so student parents from socioeconomic backgrounds and those with international background have struggled a lot when you come to a place and you don't really know anyone and you don't know how to reach out for support and the place is different and the processes are different and everyone speaks and knows different things like the word mental health for example is not a vocabulary that 
many different places are that use for example you add in going into co-op like for example on campus that place isn't it's not extortionate compared to many places but for students it is and especially when it's the only big shop on campus it's difficult and every day I go in there even just as a vegan that has its own challenges there's like not a lot there so it is interesting but there is luckily a lot of different opportunities for students and volunteering and I'd say again job market a difficult issue obviously this with the cost of living it means jobs aren't making cuts or changing roles or paying less and students who are from a low socioeconomic background the biggest thing that they'll be doing during their degree is working and that was what I was doing during my degree I was working a lot of it sometimes over 20 hours and I couldn't I had no choice and that's what this cost of living crisis is now doing to those from low socioeconomic backgrounds they have no choice but to work above those hours and it will impact their grade and it's like Carol was mentioning about students who have had to work harder and therefore smarter but it might not come across in their grades because of the basic things that they've not been they're not used to doing and again working a lot of hours during your time to make up for how expensive everything is is something that that most students couldn't control and I couldn't control and being three hours away from my parents didn't help I didn't have a car you know those things the cost of living has really made those things worse so that is definitely one of the biggest challenges I've seen as well. I think just to add to that as well there are, there's also real challenges for mature students who are on low incomes so just to give a, a story there I, I spoke to one one of our students yesterday who I won't name really really bright very able but she's a single parent and she's on universal credit now come the end of the summer term she's expected by the DFE sorry not the DFE by the you know department for work and pensions to find work over the summer she won't get her benefits over the summer because she's not studying. She has to work. And she was talking to me about how stressful it is for her to try and find work that she can fit in over the summer because she doesn't want to have to give up her degree. It's really, really challenging. Thank you, Carol and Jem. Actually, it's very important that we touch upon this topic so that us educators are aware of the situations and the working conditions of our students who are facing this essentially the cost of living crisis. I'm turning again to talk instead now, Carol, a little bit about your research, because I love the idea of challenging social identity and social framing, and you do that within the education field. So I'm going to ask you, how can universities support both educators and students to challenge and reframe notions of a gendered, social and ethnically defined selves and help develop and increase education confidence, engagement, aspiration, resilience, and self-confidence? It's a really big question. And I think from, certainly from my perspective, I think the fundamental place to start is by challenging some of our own, some of our own biases and being comfortable about acknowledging some of the things that, you know, we might think or, or believe. The idea of poverty and poor, it assumes a standard of living. And we think about poverty and low socioeconomic, you know, disadvantage as, as denoting some kinds of assumptions about values, about ways of living, about, you know, that poor person. I, I remember a student years ago, 
I asked, what are the three essential things for life? Thinking food, water, shelter. He said food, water and a fridge. (laughs) So, you know, people have ideas that if you don't have something in your life, you therefore must be pretty miserable. So it's trying to challenge some of those assumptions, I think, because... Unfortunately, what I've learned from my research is as a sociologist, someone who frames my work within a sort of social interactionalist kind of understanding of how we make sense of ourselves, your interactions with me will influence how I see myself. So I need to have positive interactions for me to have a positive self-identity. And I think we can do that as educators. I think You know, if we could do anything, what I would love is, you know, we have a really good system of academic tutoring, but what I would love more than anything for some of our underrepresented groups is to have a much more systematic mentoring system where we could actively support to boost the things that my research shows is essential for success. Things like resilience, things like self-confidence, self-esteem. You know, Jem talked very well and shared very poignantly her her hardships. But she's clearly somebody, if you don't mind me saying, Jem, who's very resilient because she didn't let those experiences define her. She used them to push herself forward. I don't know if I've gone off tangent a little bit then, but uh, <laughs> I think I think that's what we're ultimately that's you can talk about cultural capital, you can put, you can talk about social capital, but these are all kinds of things that are doing stuff to people. What we need to do is work to shape how an individual sees themselves, and then it's only that way I feel that we can really release somebody's true potential. I genuinely expect that, Jem, you'll be president or prime minister in in 20 years' time. I'm sure of it. <laughs> we hope so. <laughs> Let's talk a bit about experiences that are not just the pure teaching and learning experience. And uh, let's look at barriers that students face when they try to go to placement years and internships during their you know, study years. So I know that there is a bunch of research that has highlighted, obviously, the fact that they have financial barriers, such as extra expenses or often lack of time because of having to work, as Jen was saying before, in addition to, for instance, lack of skills, experience, lack of connections. There are then also barriers related to uh, topics like self-authenticity and being insecure around the workplace etiquette or having to challenge certain stereotypes in professional environments. Jen, what barriers have you seen facing students looking for work experience in internship and placement here? Students you know you have talked to, perhaps. Okay, so this one I did a lot of thinking about because I myself struggled to even get internships and placements that were paid while I was at university. But before I get more detail about that. One thing that I want to know does link to this, in my opinion, and from my own experience, is barriers around English in the UK and actually having good English language skills. And this doesn't mean to speaking English, but just like grammar and spelling and how this limits you at university as well as applying for jobs. Because I myself grew up in a household where my mum's grammar was awful and my dad didn't really get a proper education. And it obviously, in consequence, affected me. And I still, to this day, I'm working on it. And I just, 
yeah, it did affect me because I did a ethics and philosophy degree. So it was really frustrating because I was, I had the knowledge and I understood the work and I was really good in class. But for the life of me, lecturers couldn't understand why I couldn't get down on paper very well and neither could I. And it was I wasn't able to get extra English lessons and I did do an A-level in English literature, which I did well in. I cried when I got my result for that grade because I was not expecting to get a B because all year I was getting Ds. So it was a big deal when I did do well in that, but it, it continues to affect me. So when it comes to barriers to placement years and spring or summer internships, just being paid to do research, for example, for Europe was something that I really wanted to do. I got through to like the interview stage, but fortunately I didn't get it. But it was something I've never done before and I would love to opportunity to, but it's still something now that I don't think I'll ever be able to do because it's just not something that happens for people like me that I, there's not many people I can look up to and those that I do look up to that have done that, like Carol, it still amazes me because I think I could with the issues I still have in my grammar, I don't know if I could get there. And I still, to this day, struggle with that perception. So, yeah, it's um, I've seen a lot of that anyway from the barriers around them being unpaid, I'd say, is the biggest one. I couldn't, I wouldn't have the time to do an unpaid internship or placement. It's, I already don't have money. So it's, I, I can't do an unpaid one. And a paid one, to be honest, in my course, I didn't really engage with. I just, I didn't, I, the only thing I was thinking was I'm already struggling here. Having an extra year out to work and then coming back with different people in my course, that would make, that would make it harder because those connections I have will be gone and I'm on my own here. So that was one thing that was that did stop me around the other fact that internships were mainly unpaid and to get that work experience it was hard but I did do an internship before I came to uni during my gap year and that's how I got the job I did for a year in hospitality I just I proved to them that I was good and I was the first person through that internship they offered a job so there are some positives you know, you talk about all of the things that I c- will completely resonate with myself as well, Gem. You know, the confidence, the, uh, you know, the insecurity, the self-consciousness. Yeah, you will get over these barriers, but I absolutely understand what it is you're saying there. I like seeing the two of you at different stages, but sharing uh, similar thoughts. And actually, I suppose that this is also a move, a problem that moves forward because not being able to access a placement here or internship, that reduces chances in employability. So it's a cascading problem. And so, in fact, I want to move on thinking a little bit about the actual support that we can offer or we offer to students. But before moving to that, I wanted to ask Carol, I know that universities like ours, they monitor in the UK, they monitor the social economic progression or attainment gap of our students by looking at this index of multiple deprivation. So we use it also for our equity, diversity and inclusion work. Can you please explain this concept and tell us whether you think this is a way of good way of tracking the divide? And also there's something that you mentioned before. Do we need a cultural shift as institution and as a society when discussing the notion of poverty? 
I mean, I do think it's interesting and important to recognise that not everyone is starting on the same level. But in terms of the indices of deprivation, they're, they're quite a useful tool in that they measure seven key domains. And they look at income, employment, education, health, crime, housing and living environment. And they're weighted slightly differently. And they combine together for for small areas to get to be given a score. And they're quite useful in the fact that, you know, local authorities and governments will use these indices to determine where funding should go and and to shape policy. So, for example, if you're in a part of Reading that has very low indices of deprivation for educational participation, then they may channel some funding at that area to try and encourage people to continue on in non-compulsory education. I think the challenge with something like an indices of deprivation, though, is it, it tends to look at the big picture, which is fine, but it doesn't tell you about the lived experience. So, for example, we live in Reading and there are some wards in Reading that are in some of the top 5 and 10% of indices of deprivation nationally, which might surprise you given how economically prosperous Reading is, how close we are to London. What that doesn't tell you is how contented people are with their lives, how happy they may be. There is an assumption then that if, um, you know, if you're not continuing your education or you're on a low income, you therefore must be either very stupid or very unhappy. And of course, for lots of people living on a very low income is really challenging. I've done a lot of work with women, particularly local women in some of those high deprivation wards I've just mentioned. And it is very, very hard to try and support financially a young family to give them the trips, to get them the clothes, to buy them the presents. So I'm not dismissing these indices of deprivation, far from it. But I I think it's very important to not lose sight of the individual too. I'm not sure if that's um, helpful. Very helpful instead, I think. So what really has our university done so far, Gem, to actively try to widen this access and participation to higher education for the home students that come from more disadvantaged socioeconomic backgrounds, what support we offer to these students and what, in your opinion, we could do more? Yeah, so just lightly touching on some things around attainment, for example, I am someone actually that is part of the awarding gap, as it's also called of, which is where underrepresented groups do get lower than a 2-1 or a first. I just got into that gap. I got a 2-2, but only just. <laughs> and it's quite frustrating because I know, I mean, I did work really hard and I did what I could, but in the circumstances I was given, I wasn't able to get a 2-1. And that does haunt me a little bit because it is there's so many little things that could have been different. But I know that I am smart and it does shock a lot of people as well when they hear that but I do know myself of my skills so the university in itself they have a committee for access and participation plan because the university do have to do this every few years I think and they also have to monitor against it I think if you wanted to look at more information um, everyone is free to have a look on the website because it details all the previous plans as well as what it is and a student-friendly version as it's a little bit 
complex. There's a few different areas, but there's a few different projects going on. So I know, for example, they have something called the Brilliant Club. I think that's where some students come, go into schools and they encourage them to come into the university. There's a few uh, financial awards or so that students can apply to, one of them being like the Hardship Fund. And that, again, is for students who specifically will be going through difficulties. I know that there's, there used to be some barriers around that as well, though, and I think they're working on improving that. But the student support services also are linked to Black Bullion, which is it's like a website that helps you budget and manage money. It's something that I really wish I actually used more as a student, to be honest. But again, there's just there is a lot of things there. But to be honest, the culture at um, Reading is to reach out to get help. And if you're not from a place that is like that, it can be a bit difficult to get your head around that because no one will reach out to you. You have to be you have to reach out first. So I'd say that's a big thing. Another project from Access and Participation Plan that um, actually is new was the Black Leadership Programme that um, they did with the Students' Union in collaboration. That was really successful and we worked with careers and that was on helping Black students in getting their career confidence and having that employability skills and it is a barrier for many but there was a lot of feedback around that and I'm hoping that the university look into funding that through the Access and Participation Fund next time. But there's loads of different opportunities and different examples I could give um, that weren't even in the plan as well. So the university are, are going like above and beyond, I guess, what's in the plan already. And we do hope that it's impacting students because we did do a cost of living initiative as well this year. So there is a lot, even without outside the plan that's going on, that is really good to hear. But there's more details on the website if you're curious and if you want to give feedback for the next plan I am the student lead for the student submission so yeah you can always reach out to me as well if you want to give some feedback on what you'd like to see in the next plan maybe and what students would like the university to work on. Brilliant. It's good to see that there is so much support out there. And I should also highlight that we uh, also Heli Business School we have bursaries for financial hardship so it's it's a common theme Um, in terms of support across the University of Reading. I'm going to shift a little bit from the student experience to the experience of academics. And so I'm going to ask the last question to Carol, because I'm very curious to know what she thinks about academics and teachers themselves, as they could be impacted by stigmas and also a sort of lack of self-confidence when they come from a lower socioeconomic background. So I want to know your opinion about that and whether you think academic life and expectations have changed over the years in terms of social status or not? Well, you know, it's a really interesting question. And I suppose one of the ways I can answer that is to reflect on my own journey. So I, you know, I am from a widening participation background. I grew up in in an area where, you know, of high social deprivation, if we're going to use the multiple indices of deprivation. Um, I spent many years just drifting between one low paid job to another, knowing that I was you know, quite capable, but not knowing how to, uh, how to have any kind of career. Anyway, cut a long story short, I come to university in my early 30s, end up doing a PhD and end up, poor university can't ever get rid of me, I'm here. And I'm stuck and, uh, and I'm, I'm here forever, I think. But when I reflect back on the journey that I've had, because obviously now I'm a professor, I'm head of the Institute of Education, and I still say to myself, 
oh my goodness, I'm a professor. Oh my goodness, I'm head of institute. How the heck did I ever get here? Or when I first published a book, it was like, my name is on a book. And I, I showed it to everybody because I just couldn't believe it. And I think looking back, I think in those early years, I had no confidence. Of course, I felt like a complete and utter fraud. I was waiting for someone to figure out that they'd made a mistake. I wasn't quite smart enough. I wasn't up to it. I felt very insecure about everything I did, you know, every every piece of work I ever wrote. And it's only through time and experience that you figure out, actually, none of us are very smart. (laughs) So I don't have to worry about not being smart because there's a whole club of us. And, um, And actually, the challenge and the issue is not with other people and how they see you it's how you see yourself and what I realized the key to my career is shifting how I saw myself shifting um, my you know academic identity I suppose and when I did that I thought you know what I'm going to apply for promotion and I did and I got it and then once I became a professor, then I kind of thought, no, I don't care what anyone thinks anymore. <laughs> I bought myself some Dr. Martins, um, had my nose pierced. I thought, no one, they can say what they like now because I'm a professor. But I do recognize that I had to get to this point before I truly felt comfortable in my own skin. And that's our inner journey. In terms of the people I work with, I've never felt that I was treated differently or there were different expectations of me. I mean, I used to be very aware if I was with colleagues that spoke beautiful, lovely English, and I used to feel, uh, no, I don't speak like you do. And they were very educated in that they'd had different educational upbringings and they were very, you know, au fait with literature and, and some of that cultural capital that I didn't have and still don't have. But what I've learned at this age is that it doesn't matter because I have other talents and I and I can do other things. So for for those academics that may be struggling with those feelings, it's about looking in the mirror and knowing that you're there because somebody employed you because they saw your potential and they saw what you could achieve. I think I sound a bit like um, preaching a, a sermon. <laughs> I mean it most sincerely, you know, I really do. Your background does not define the person that you could potentially be. And I think that's my key message. But you need to believe in yourself. And and if I'm totally honest, you do need people to believe in you too along the way. And that might be a line manager. It might be a friend. It might be a family member. I think it's fair to say you don't get there on your own. Thank you, Carol. Thank you, Jem. I certainly learn a lot from both of you on a personal level. Thanks for sharing your knowledge and experience in such an authentic conversation on this important topic of social mobility in universities. And thank to all those who listen to this LA Business School podcast. Goodbye. <laughs>